What can I say about the golden rule that hasn't already been said? We are all familiar with the rule, and if I asked you to recite it, we could repeat it in unison, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. One doesn't have to be a Christian to be familiar with this maxim. In fact, it is present in almost every major religion. Here are a few. In Buddhism, we find hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. In Confucianism, we find do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. In Hinduism, the words are stated, this is the sum of duty. Do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. In Judaism, we find whatever is hurtful to yourself, do not to your fellow man. That is the whole of the law and the rest is merely commentary. I even came across something classified as common sensism, which says, treat people the way that you'd like to be treated. This concept isn't new to us, and it likely wasn't new at the time that the multitudes heard it when Jesus spoke those words to them. In fact, commentaries support the idea that Rabbi Hillel who was the grandfather of Gamaliel, you may know him as a teacher of Paul the Apostle, Rabbi Hillel also stated the golden rule in response to a Gentile who asked that the Torah be explained to him while standing on one foot. Hillel responded, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah or the first five books of the Bible. The rest is the explanation. Go and learn. These words he would have uttered just a few decades before Jesus began his ministry. Now in Matthew 7 verse 12, we find Jesus's version of the golden rule, which states, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. I don't know if you caught the difference between the way that Jesus phrases that rule in contrast to the way that other religions state it. Jesus presents this command positively, stating what we should do instead of in the negative, stating what we should not do. By stating this in the positive, Jesus provides encouragement for us to engage in positive behaviors instead of behaviors that we ought to avoid. Don't avoid hurting yourself because you don't want to be hurt. Be gracious to others as you would have them be gracious to you. Don't avoid using harsh words with others because you don't want them to speak harshly to you, but speak the truth in love as you would have others speak to you. And when I was in my undergraduate program at Southern, uh, I studied psychology. And psychology on its own, as a bachelor's degree, isn't really worth much. It wasn't worth much then, and it still isn't worth much more now. So if you are studying psychology as an undergrad, you have to commit to at least 
one postgraduate degree. And so I quickly realized this and began to uh, research all the various fields in psychology that I could specialize in. And a few areas I found interesting. One in particular was behavioral psychology. And there is a particular concept within behavioral psychology called operant conditioning. And essentially, operant conditioning is the process in which a behavior is learned or reinforced by either negative or positive stimuli. So to break that down, there are two ways to reinforce a behavior. You can introduce a negative or unwanted factor or stimulus in which one will decide, ugh, I don't quite like this feeling, so I am going to stay away from it and engage in the positive behavior. Or you can decide the alternative is to introduce a positive factor a factor that one enjoys engaging in. And so you say to yourself, well, I like this feeling. I like the, the results of this positive behavior, so I'll keep engaging in this behavior. Interestingly, the chemical oxytocin is a naturally occurring chemical in our bodies that reinforces positive social bonding and behavior. It can be triggered by acts of human generosity or giving without expecting anything in return. So our bodies intrinsically have the ability to reward and reinforce behavior that is encouraged here in the golden rule. Jesus says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. The adverb generally, the adverb therefore is generally used to introduce a logical result or conclusion. So here in this context, the use of the word therefore denotes that there is some relationship to what Jesus is saying here in the golden rule with what he has already said. He doesn't utter these words in isolation. A few verses back in Matthew chapter seven, verses one to six, the focus is on not judging, or rather not berating others to make oneself look good. Christ is giving instructions for how we should interact in our relationships, and he returns again to that concept of relationships here in Matthew 7, verse 12. We were created to be relational beings. We were created to be in a relationship with God, and we were created to be in a relationship with each other. That model was disrupted once we allowed ourselves to be deceived by the promise of greater knowledge and the promise of being like God. And our perfect union with God and with each other was broken. Suddenly, instead of becoming more like God, we found ourselves as far away from him as possible. It became us against God and it became us against each other. And we know this because Adam's first inclination when God sought him after this terrible decision that he had made, his inclination at first was to protect himself. It was all about him. So he cast the blame elsewhere. He didn't want to take responsibility for the decision he had just made. The relationship between God and humanity and within humanity itself was altered forever. 
And so God, in his mercy, created guidelines to teach us and show us steps toward repairing that divide. He gave the Ten Commandments, and in it, he outlined the parameters for living. But the problem then became that as they kept the law, they became caught up in the particulars of the law, and the law became their measure of righteousness. This is why he says to the multitude in Matthew 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you stop obsessing over the exactness of the law, about checking a box, and unless you embrace the intended meaning of the law, then it will be difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees placed the literal interpretation of the law above the intent of the law, above the love that was to emanate from the law, love for God and love for our neighbors. And we do the same. We are no different. Looking back at my childhood and the culture that I grew up in, the emphasis was so heavy on keeping within rules and guidelines for Christian conduct and appearance, it was almost impossible to see the face of God behind all the rules. Rules that were really just commentary and that didn't even focus on love for God or love for each other. In fact, I would witness the mistreatment of individuals and rejection of them when they weren't in following with the rules. I think of the missed opportunities to extend love and grace to so many in those opportunities at a time when they needed it the most. As Jesus begins to conclude his sermon, he emphasizes the idea of relationship, relationship with our fellow man. Again, this isn't a new principle that he's presenting. In Deuteronomy 6, when, he is instruct, when Jesus is instructing the Israelites to observe his commandments and to teach them to their children, he says to them in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is relationship with God. And in Leviticus 19, verse 18, he states, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Relationship with man. In Matthew 22, when the Pharisees ask him, what is the greatest commandment of all, he refers them back to these two scriptures as the first and great commandment, and the second commandment. Jesus addresses the second commandment here in the golden rule, and interestingly, he frames it a little differently in Matthew 7 than in Matthew 22. And I believe he does so because he wants to be clear about what love for others looks like. Some have tried to dismiss the idea of the golden rule by saying, it doesn't make sense to do to others what I would want to done to me, because they may not like the same things that I like. George Bernard Shaw, the well-known Irish playwright, once said, do not do unto others as you would that they should do unto you. Their taste may not be the same. But I would suggest that this is a very simplistic interpretation of the golden rule. 
Christ is not talking about imposing our preferences on others, nor is he talking about doing good to others just so we'll be rewarded by them. Or society emphasizes a very self-driven agenda. I remember when I was in high school, the phrase that was pretty common then was, I gotta look out for number one, right? Which is essentially saying that I have to act in my own interest. I have to act in a way that is advantageous primarily to me. Forget what other people need, it's, it's about me. It sounds a bit repulsive thinking about it and talking about it out loud. But when we place ourselves in a frame of mind where our desires and needs trump that of anyone else, we don't have room to consider the needs of others. We don't have room to be empathetic and to place ourselves in the shoes of another. We miss opportunities to put love in action, opportunities to be caring, considerate, and understanding. Now let's be honest. It is impossible to truly love others indiscriminately and without reservation unless we have help from God. And it is impossible to do to others what we would have done to us unless we truly understand and receive the grace of God. Ellen White writes in the July 11, 1892 edition of Signs of the Times and says, to the repenting sinner, God is ever ready to show his mercy and truth. He is ready to bestow upon him forgiveness and love. And he requires that those who have been blessed by his compassion shall reveal the same mercy and love toward their fellow men. For this is doing the works of Christ. This is keeping the commandments of God. Those who show true gratitude glorify God by loving him supremely and their neighbors as themselves. This is really what it's about. Understanding that we have been gifted with God's amazing grace and his love and extending this grace and love to others that we interact with on a daily basis. So I came across a story about Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker, who were both great English speakers of the 19th century. Uh, they resided in London, and they both had fairly large churches in attendance of their services on Sundays. Uh, Spurgeon had a passion for helping children in need, and so he opened an orphanage and uh, housed boys there who were without parents. And one day, Parker happened to make the comment about helping Spurgeon with the needs in, an, his, in his orphanage because the children may not have enough clothes to wear and food to eat. However, someone in attendance, while he stated this comment, twisted his words and went back to Spurgeon and told Spurgeon that he was criticizing his operation of the orphanage. Spurgeon, as you can imagine, was highly upset that a friend of his, a close friend of his, would say such a thing about him. And so 
he took to the pulpit, probably not the most appropriate thing to do, but he took to the pulpit and criticized Parker very harshly in a sermon that following week. Now, in those days, because of Spurgeon's popularity, there were newspaper reporters that would attend the services and they would transcribe his sermons and publish them in the newspapers. And so the sermon that Spurgeon shared didn't stay locally within that congregation. It was spread all over London for everyone to have a chance to see what he had to say about his friend, Parker. Now, Parker would have been within his rights to be upset when the newspaper reporters approached him and asked if he was planning to respond to Spurgeon, he said, I think I will. I think I will respond to him this Sunday. And so that Sunday, as you can imagine, the church was packed with spectators who probably weren't there uh, for the right reasons, but they were curious to hear what Parker would respond to Spurgeon's, uh, to Spurgeon's harsh criticism about him. And so, as Parker approached the pulpit, the audience was quiet and still as they waited in anticipation to hear what he had to say. And he got up and uttered these words, or Brother Spurgeon is sick today, and this is the day that he would collect an offering for his orphanage. And since he is unable to do so, let us do so for him. The audience was wow. They couldn't believe this was all he had to say. In fact, they were so touched that the deacons had to empty the plates three times because of how much they gave. Later that day, the deacons bagged the money and took it over to Spurgeon and told him what had happened that day at church. And later that week, Spurgeon went to the home of Parker and threw his arms around him and said to him, you have given me what I have needed instead of what I have deserved. You have practiced grace on me. And this is the same that Jesus requires of us, right? He has given us his love and grace and he is asking us to extend that love and grace to others as well. Now it is easy to reciprocate kindness when it is shown to us, but the challenge comes when we are not treated kindly, when we are criticized and when we face harsh words, when we face prejudice, bigotry, meanness, and spite. How will we respond then? In moments when we are tempted and when it seems within our right to give as much as we've gotten. We are given those parameters in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul says, love suffers long and is kind. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked and it does not think evil thoughts. This is what God's love looks like toward us. And this is what we ought to extend to others because he loves us this way. But how, how do we love when we have been wronged? How do we fulfill this law of reciprocity when others don't even espouse it? 
The answer is simple. We can't. We can't do it on our own if we tried. And this is perhaps why this verse is included in the thoughts where Jesus tells us to be persistent in asking and seeking him in prayer. The imagery of David comes to mind, bowed over in the presence of God, pleading, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This should be our prayer as well. This is the only way that we will truly be able to love ourselves and to extend that love to others. It is a process that starts with God. God loves us. He teaches us how to love, and in turn, he expects us to extend that love to others. We have all heard what Jesus has had to say leading up to this point, and now we must make a choice. After he states that the fulfillment of the law is in how we treat others, he extends an appeal. He has spoken about Christian character and conduct along with their attitude and relationship to the world in the Beatitudes. He has spoken about how the Christian's character and conduct should influence the world using the metaphors salt and light. He describes the relationship of the Christian to God's law as contrasted with the Jewish view of the law by highlighting the idea that we should follow the spirit of the law instead of the letter of the law. He speaks about the Christian's devotional life, highlighting the importance of sincerity of heart instead of outward displays of religiosity. He talks about the Christian's relationship to money and possessions and the need to be dependent upon him, being more concerned about storing up our treasures in heaven than on earth. He goes on to talk about how we should relate to one another by not being judgmental. And then here, he talks about how we should treat others by loving them, by doing unto them what we would have done unto us. And so his appeal is therefore this. I have set before you the attributes of a life of faith. Now that you are equipped with this knowledge, you have two options. In verses 13 and 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. While in graduate school in New York, I was dating Murray at the time, uh, I would try to come back to Maryland about once a month to see him. And I would have to take the subway to get to the bus station. And if you're familiar with the subway system in New York, or even the metro system here in DC, you know that it's designed for just really one person to go through. There's not room enough for much of anything else. And so because I always traveled with my luggage, I could never go through those gates. They were too narrow for me. And so I would always have to go to the attendant and ask the attendant to open the wider gate so that it could fit me and all my baggage. Well, this 
is what Jesus is presenting. He's contrasting these two options. And really, for us, there is only one choice that we can make out of these two options. The first option is a narrow gate. After hearing his teachings, we can choose to accept and to leave the baggage of self-righteousness and pride behind. We can choose to love others, not for selfish gain, not from what we can get from it, but because we are all children of the King. We can accept that his way is better and enter into his kingdom. He doesn't promise that it will be easy. In fact, he states it there in the verse that it's difficult. That's probably why not many people travel that way. But I love in 1 John 5 verse 3 that he tells us that this command to love God and our neighbors, it's not burdensome. It may be difficult, but it's not burdensome, even though we try to make it seem that way at times. The other option he presents, it's a popular way, and it's wide enough for all our baggage. We can fit selfishness, pride, self-righteousness, arrogance, we can take it all in. However, that group that chooses this well-traveled path meets a destructive end. During my time at Gallup, I administered a number of surveys to clients, and as we constructed the questionnaires, we would choose whether we wanted to, to include multiple choice questions or whether we wanted to do forced uh, questions that ask them to choose yes or no. And sometimes we would choose a third, we would include a third option for them to, you know, select don't know or doesn't apply. Well, we don't have that luxury in this case with what Jesus is presenting to us. We have to make, we have to commit to one of these choices. There isn't another way to gain eternal life. And we know this, right? I'm not presenting something new to you here today. But sometimes we need a reminder. We need the reminder that we have to commit. We have to make a choice about how we will live our lives. And it is clear the choice that we have to make. Jesus says it himself, what that choice is. Enter by the narrow gate. And with God leading us, let us recommit today to following the great commandments that he has set before us. To love the Lord or God, each of us, with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and to love our neighbor, just as much as we love ourselves.